Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Wisdom Matters. So turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 23, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Forbidden Sex. can't begin to overemphasize the revolutionary power of the sexual revolution that took root in the Western world in the 1960s and beyond. I often shock the younger generation by replaying a sex education class in my grade eight year. Sex education, at least in my school, well, it was carried out by the gym teacher. And fascinatingly enough, sometime after he gave his lecture, I mean, he's removed from his post for having sexual relations with a female gym teacher. But that was a different story. The swirling winds of the new sexual ethic were all around us. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, prominent singing group, had sung the song, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And they meant by that, if your spouse is not around for sex, have sex with anyone who might be available at that moment. It was also quite popular to portray sex like a sporting event. You know, if you're playing volleyball with a different teammate this week than the one you played with last week, I mean, how is that even a moral question? Sex is physical exercise. Go out and enjoy, we were told. And that was the counsel of the day. And of course, that was the sexual revolution intended to overthrow the existing order. You know, the existing order saw sexual relations as something that was to be reserved for marriage alone. But stone after stone and Molotov cocktail after Molotov cocktail were thrown through the window of that edifice. And at least for a time, the battle between two prevailing worldviews was underway. And that brings me back to the drama of my grade eight sex ed class. It was deemed appropriate for gym class because those classes were divided according to gender and there were only boys in the room where we talked. And my teacher explained the act and then explained that, you know, the first time a woman had sex, her hymen would break. She would no longer be a virgin. Now, outside of the biological reality of that, which was news for all of us, you know, my teacher went on. Now he said, how many of you boys can't wait to have sex? And I can't recall anyone's hands going up, but most of us knew the answer. I mean, sex was all around us and a great many of us desperately wanted in on the action. And the next statement caught us all by surprise. See, our teacher said, now, young men, one day, every one of you are going to get married, have a wife of your own, have a family. Yep. You know, the full impact of the sexual revolution had not yet been felt. All of us wanted to get married and have a family. And then he said, do you want to marry a woman who's had sex with someone in your class? And forever after, he's the one that broke her hymen. And he's the one that remembers ending her virginity. Do you want to marry a virgin? And here, when I explain that scene today, I mean, the younger generation is amazed. But almost everyone in my classroom when I was young, the way I remember it, it was really everyone in the room, no exceptions. Everyone wanted to marry a virgin. We couldn't imagine it any other way. And then my teacher asked us, if you want to marry a virgin, how do you think the girls who are having class on this very subject right now feel about marrying a guy who's not a virgin? Do you actually think she wants you? Well, that was news. It was like a thunderclap over our heads. Now, I'm convinced that kind of a lecture didn't happen for many years after that. I mean, for one, the invention of the birth control pill for women had changed all the rules unalterably. And furthermore, the revolutionaries of the new sexual movement were going to win at almost every front. 
Now, what followed was the destruction of one definition of what constituted sexual morality after another. We didn't yet know about sexual politics and the politics of sexual power, and then about the struggle of what should constitute consent. We didn't yet know that there were many more sexual diseases that we would learn about. We didn't know about the complete triumph of the homosexual revolution, the transgender revolution, the unending courtroom charges of sexual aggression, about the balance of power in what can be used to establish sexual consent and so forth. I mean, on and on it goes. And we didn't yet know that one day counseling someone to leave their so-called sexual orientation could become a crime punishable by prison. And the far-reaching implications were yet to come. But let's move away from the sexual revolution, the politics of sex. Let's talk about the drama of Proverbs. This is a book in which a father is teaching his son or sons about the way of wisdom, the way of uprightness, the way of insight, the way of God that leads to the best possible outcome in both life and in eternity. And given that the sexual urge is so very much a part of what it means to be human, it's inconceivable that a father would teach wisdom to his son without talking about this. It must be a part of Christian discipleship for the young. So we can divide Proverbs chapter 5 into four paragraphs. The first paragraph is a paragraph that tells us what's not permitted. Now, in the sexual ethic of our culture, we have that as well. See, what's not permitted in our culture is sex without consent. What's not permitted is an imbalance of power in the sexual act. What's not permitted is the failure to understand that no means no, even if you're both naked in bed. See, what's not permitted is failure to exercise caution against sexually transmitted diseases. Now, as we read a very different description of sexual ethics in this first paragraph here in chapter 5, please don't come to the conclusion that this is simply an older, now outdated, and defeated ethic. That's not what's at play here. Against this ethic in chapter 5 of Proverbs was the reality of the pagan religions that surrounded Israel. There was sacred temple prostitution. That's but one of a number of varieties of options that awaited every aware young Israelite. The background of the temptation the young man faced some 3,000 years ago is in some ways no different from what we face today. So it's not outdated. So let's begin with the first paragraph, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now, the first two verses form an introduction. As before, we have the picture of the father and the son, not in conversation, but rather the father instructing his son about the power of sex. Be attentive, says the father. Fix your attention fully on my teaching. Incline your ear. As saying he said in the past, make sure you catch every single word I'm teaching. I want, says the father, that you keep discretion. And that word translated as discretion can be contrasted with the word impulsive. I want you to act in wisdom and not act on the impulse of the moment. I want you to have already decided in advance the ethics of sex long before the opportunity arises. And furthermore, says the father, I want your lips. 
and the way that you talk about sex to be in conformance with the knowledge of God and his will and the pathway that leads to life. And curious, isn't that? It does little good to say that you hold a Christian worldview of sexual morality and then trade in humor or locker room talk. Speak as you think. Communicate as if you are pure and holy. Now, the father is ready for the lesson. You'll notice that the object of his concern is the forbidden woman. And the word forbidden is translated in different ways in different translations. Another translation simply says the adulterous woman. Still, another translation calls her unchaste. And the context of who she is becomes plain. I mean, down in verse 20, she will be called the adulteress. She's the woman that does not belong to this young man. He has no covenant of marriage with her. And because the covenant of marriage is what would bind a man and woman together, and because they have no bond, she's forbidden. See, this passage anticipates that down the road, there's going to be a woman for whom the son will form a covenant. And this woman is outside of that. She's forbidden by God himself. This is good teaching how wise we would be if we taught our children what the Bible teaches. Consider Paul's words to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 2. Older women are to be regarded as mothers, and younger women are to be regarded as sisters. Regard them, think of them in this way. And when you think of them, envisage them as such, not the object of desire. But in the test case that the father gives in Proverbs, and he's teaching his son, he envisages this woman as a seductress. Indeed, the father wants his son to know how desirable she is. And notice the imagery. There is honey on her lips. And what she speaks is the sweetest words he's ever heard. And she inflates his ego and she fills him with praise. And all the while, she's available. But as is often the case in Proverbs, it's certainly the case here, the father wants his son to look beyond the immediacy of the moment. He wants him to see wormwood or poison. He wants him to see the outcome of the adulterous relationship. It will be anguish. It will be emotional wretchedness and physical death. This woman is the pathway to death. And to yield to her, says the father, will be to join her pathway. It is the pathway of the damned. Our society is filled with hustle and noise. Everyone is in a rush to go and do. We always are striving to be productive, and too often we carry this flustered spirit into our faith. But what if God was looking for our presence and not just our productivity? God wants us to know Him intimately. This requires time, time to be still and silent with Him. So, in response, back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld have created a new 30-day devotional entitled Quiet Spaces, Volume 2. This is the next installment of the original Quiet Spaces devotional. This is your opportunity to take a moment in the Word, a quiet space for God in your day. So we want to send you this resource, Quiet Spaces, Volume 2, for free this month by just calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca Get past the immediate temptation, the father tells the son. Look further down the road. If you say yes to the temptation and engage in relations with a forbidden woman, ask yourself where your life ends up. See her not as an innocent player in this drama. Rather, see her as a hunter or a huntress. 
someone who seeks your life. Her feet are on the pathway to death, and so are yours, if you should involve yourself with her. Now we come now to the second paragraph of this chapter. In the second paragraph, the father wants his son to imagine with him what it would be like should he disregard the advice. What would happen if he became sexually involved with a forbidden woman? So let's hear what the father has to say. I'm reading Proverbs 5, 7 to 14. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So the basic instruction is simple. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. That's actually not a difficult command to keep. As we contemplate how this might work out in everyday practical life, we we might need to think about the example of Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph is a slave to a wealthy and powerful master. His name is Potiphar, and Potiphar would treat Joseph well, except it all came with a problem. Potiphar had a wife who was immoral, and she made Joseph an offer, sleep with me. According to Genesis 39, verse 10, Joseph would not even be with her. He arranged his life and his duties in such a way that he'd always avoid her. And as we know, that plan went awry when she trapped him in the house with just the two of them. She grabbed his cloak, but he simply slipped out of it, ran out of the house. That provides for us a marvelous example. The father says, keep far away from such a woman. Never go near her house. You know, years ago while I was pastoring, I I made a deal with my fellow pastors. Indeed, we wrote up a contract that we all signed. We would not ride in a car alone with a woman who was not our wife, our mother, our daughter, or our sister. We would not go out for coffee or to a restaurant. We would not counsel with our door closed. We would not enter into an intimate friendship with someone of the opposite sex. You know, someone will criticize this decision because, you know, it sets up barriers between men and women working together. But I was not naive, and I recognized the power of attraction and the power of desire that overcomes our commitments. Don't go near the door of her house. So what if the young man does? What if he breaks through the do not enter signs and becomes sexually involved? That's what the father wants the son to contemplate. And in that case, says the father, four things are likely to happen. And here's the first in verse nine, you'll give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Now this verse mentions honor, which is one standing in the community. And it mentions years, which speaks of how one becomes over time or at the end of a period of years. See, unlike a person, you know, who was attacked by an enemy who might have broken into his house and stolen his possessions, in this case, it's the son who has voluntarily given away his wealth and his future. His dignity is gone because he slept with another man's wife. His standing in the community is gone. And by the way, that's just not true in those days. It is today. I mean, think of all the scandalous stories you've heard. Everyone from pastors to military leaders to politicians to teachers to sports coaches to athletes to people in the media 
people in the entertainment industry, to business people, sexual scandal has engulfed one reputation after another. The outcome of one life after another is left with sadness and despair. That's the first outcome. Your honor has been given away and your ears have been robbed by the one who is merciless. Here now comes the second outcome, which is found in verse 10. Strangers will take fill of your strength and everything that you've worked for will go to a foreigner. Now that could refer to the husband of the woman. He comes after the man who slept with his wife. But whoever it refers to, the outcome is always the same. The things you'll spend your lifetime working for will be gone and they will go to another. The third outcome is in verses 11 and 12. The father now imagines that the son has come to the end of his years. And he's not surrounded by his wife and loving family and filled with contentment. Rather, he's groaning. All he can remember is that at every turn, he absolutely hated it when someone corrected him. He went his own way, and that way ended up with great disappointment. And finally, from verse 14, he simply says, I am at the brink of utter ruin. The community does not seek me out. People don't say of that older man, there's wisdom. Let him instruct us. Indeed, he's got nothing. And so in speaking about the forbidden woman, we have to hear, you know, in the first paragraph, the description of the woman the young man must never go near. The second paragraph, the idea that the young man has now sinned by engaging in a sexual tryst with the woman, and the father is imagining the end of the son's life. Now we come to the third paragraph, which is a much happier picture. It's the picture of the married young man who has remained faithful to the wife of his youth all the days of his life. Proverbs 5, 15 to 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? It's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. It expresses the joy and physical intimacy between a man and his wife, married love in all its beauty and all its righteousness. You have, says the Father, a cistern, a place where the water of life is kept. It's found in the wife of your youth. It's a wonderful picture. Love that's found and given in youth is love that's imprinted on one's soul. But even if the young wife is compared to a cistern, or a well that springs forth in water, so also the young husband is compared to a water fountain. And in each case, it's water that refreshes both of them. But with the joy of married sexual love comes a warning. Yes, young man, you're like a fountain of water to her, but that fountain must be an exclusive fountain. It's a love that must never be shared in any place other than what Hebrews 13 verse 4 refers to as the marriage bed. Now, notice the beginning of verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed. And that means let your spring of sexual desire be blessed. May you feel a deep sexual desire, not for anyone, but for the wife of your youth, the woman you entered into a covenant with in marriage. Indeed, speaking years later, Paul would say that a married couple should not deprive one another of sexual satisfaction. But here in Proverbs, the description is quite extensive. The father wants his son's wife to fill his son with desire and delight. He's to be enraptured by her breasts. He is to be intoxicated by her love. And consider the contentment of a rich and full sexual life with your wife. 
and consider the deep emotional scars of a sexual life of the adulterers. Both involve sex and desire, but one leaves no burden and scars, and the other leaves sorrow. And this is a word not just to young men, also young women, as well as couples who have been married for some time. Speak with each other. Practice love for each other. Allow that romantic spark to be reignited many times in the course of your marriage. Don't deprive each other. Instead, be with each other and be fulfilled in your love. And with those words on how God has created the Son to live comes the last short paragraph. Proverbs 5, 21 to 23. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. See, I once read an article by an insightful pastor. He said in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, people referred to illicit sex as getting a piece. It was prophetic, he said. Not only did they give a piece of themselves, they got a piece from the other. And now many small pieces of other sexual encounters remain, never resolved, always allowed into the bedroom. The room's crowded with many spent pieces of the past. In the end, it never felt like sex was a gift from God, but rather it felt like it was a curse. Held fast by the cords of sin, he dies for lack of discipline. May God be merciful to those who find themselves this way, so that they might repent of their sins and find mercy. And for those who contemplate the way of impurity, may Proverbs chapter 5 shock us concerning the way of death and motivate us toward the way of life. Thanks, John, for your message today. I just got to ask you, based upon what you've said, it seems to me that we need to spend more time and effort understanding and communicating the value and benefits of a biblical sexual ethic. Yeah, we certainly can't take it for granted. That we know. Uh, we now live in a world that's um, uh, that pretty well everything you hear in the public sphere is going to be opposed to the Christian ethic. You know, I like to say this to young people that if you're not dating a fellow believer, you know, if you're not dating that, you're going to date someone who holds a sexual ethic that's uh, in every way opposed to what you have been taught. So. Uh, I think it's necessary not only to speak about sex, we need to speak about ethics in sex, and we need to explain to our young people why it is that we hold or withhold sexual relations until marriage, and to speak about the beauty of marital sex. So all of these things are very important in the day in which we live. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again at the beginning of next week as we continue our series, Wisdom Matters, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to provide Bible teaching you can trust in every medium possible, to break down any barriers from spending time in God's Word. So check out all the Bible resources available online, video, print, radio, podcast, and CD. And it's our prayer that anybody who tunes in finds encouragement in their spiritual journey. We want to guide you back to your Bibles. All of this is made possible through the faithful support of our listeners. If you would like to make a financial contribution to this ministry, or even consider blessing us with a reoccurring monthly gift to help propel the Word of God across Canada, 
and beyond, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebiblecanada.ca. And thanks so much for your support.